The Glue, the podcast about business development, marketing and communications in professional services. So welcome to The Glue. I'm James Stringer, a former BD director and now trainer, consultant and coach on business development bids and offsites. This podcast is called The Glue because the BD marketing and communications teams in professional services are the glue that holds the whole thing together. In this episode, we'll be exploring the pointy end of business development, selling. While all professional service firms are seeking growth, having worked in big law and the big four, I recognise that different firms' attitudes to sales vary from enthusiasm to seeing it as a dirty word. Therefore, we'll be considering questions including, why does the idea of selling provoke such mixed reactions still? Can firms use sales professionals successfully either to augment or instead of the traditional partner model of revenue generation? If a firm wants to increase its sales effectiveness, where should it start? What sales skills are partners and other professionals most and least comfortable using? How successful have firms been in productizing their services? And what's the future for sales in professional services? To help me discuss these topics, I'm joined by John Timperley and Lee Curtis. John Timperley is Managing Director of the Results Consultancy based in London, which helps partners and senior professionals to win high-value work through hands-on coaching on live opportunities, as well as running sales training programs internationally. John is author of three books on business development in the professions. Welcome to The Glue, John. Thanks for inviting me, James. Lee Curtis is Managing Director of Linear Consulting, and he tells me he loves selling. He also loves teaching others, whether it's sales and business development or scuba diving. Having worked in business development and sales roles across three continents within law firms for over 20 years, Lee feels confident he can unlock the hidden sales talents that lie within. Welcome to The Glue, Lee. Great to be here, James. Thanks a lot for the invite. So let's make a start. Is there still a stigma about using the word sales in professional services? And if so, why? Lee? Good question. And I think to answer it simply, yes, there is. But I think it's diminishing. Personally, I think ego has got a lot to do with it. For many years, I think professionals have thought that sales is beneath them. In my role at Linear Consulting, I do find it slightly amusing that we can tolerate words like relationship management and client development, but not call sales what it actually is. And John, from your perspective, having worked with law firms, accountancy firms, management consultancies, etc., what's your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree with Lee in law, actually, James. But if you take the wider professional services, I think it's an interesting mix now, you know. I'm former PwC 20 20 years ago, but even 20 years ago, sales was a thing and partners were trained in sales. So one presumes that the sales process has, has increased since then as the level of sophistication of firms has increased and of course, the, the nature of partners and their attitude towards revenue generation has also developed. So from what you were both saying there, it sounds as though law firms are still somewhat behind maybe the big four. Is that still the case? I think there's a difference, Lee, isn't there, between the sophisticated, the big international law firms that do spend money in this area and a medium-sized firm that looks to the partners for 
growing the practice, but also managing people and doing everything else as well. So I would imagine that the big law firms would, wouldn't quite see themselves on a par with the accounting firms for all those reasons that you just mentioned. But I do think that they feel like, you know, they've got good systems in place for, let's call it business development, but pitching and other aspects of the process. Uh, so I think there's a spectrum. I think there's a definite spectrum. Equally, there's a spectrum in accounting as well when you go down to the mid-tier level. And you've both had experience of two common business development models, the first being, as we've already said, that partners are the sales force of the firm, and the second, that non-partner sales specialists represent the firm. I think it would be interesting for our listeners to understand what the pros and cons of each approach John, perhaps you might address the partner model. Partner model, interesting one, because, of course, uh, most firms adopt this model. Pros and cons with the partner model is simply pro. The partner, the seller of the service, is the deliverer of the service together with their team. And the con is the partner is the deliverer of the service and the seller of the service. So if you break that down... Partners tended not to come into the profession to be a great salesperson. If they had that ability, they'd probably go down that that route of sales or marketing. They came into the law or accounting or consulting to be a great law accountant consulting professional. But as they've developed, of course, they've got to grow the practice, which means sales. Now, some are naturals. I've seen some fantastic professionals in the law, all those disciplines, but equally, some aren't, and that's clearly the challenge where sales is concerned because ultimately the client has a choice as to who to choose, and sometimes the most persuasive individual is the one that gets chosen. A partner sometimes isn't the right person to be as persuasive. Or if I may say, it's not just about persuasion, is it? It's about the determination, the discipline of sales, prospecting, tracking sales. And most professionals don't have the time or, frankly, the stomach to do that properly. So that's interesting, isn't it? And I guess that's why law firms, accountancy firms, others have looked into perhaps trying to move selling away from partners to other professionals, perhaps people who are better and, as you said, John, perhaps got a bit more of the stomach for it. Lee, you've had experience of that. What did you find with the pros and cons of that? Yeah, again, really interesting. I think, uh, well, I'd, first of all, I'd agree with everything that you said, John. You know, if you just look at the makeup of any of these firms we're talking about, the majority, the overwhelming majority of your sales force will be the partners, the senior associates, etc. So I can't see a situation going forward where you don't enable those people to be a large portion of your sales force. But I think what we're talking about here and what I'm passionate about is understanding, as you've rightly pointed out, John, that there are additional and complementary skills that sales professionals have over and above what the partners and the senior associates have as part of their training. Because as you again rightly point out, the the skills that are trained as part of your law degree or your accounting exams don't usually in include sales training. I'm talking about things like pipeline management, the ability for a salesperson to be a bit more direct. So in a way, play bad cop or tough cop in any sales discussion that partners or senior associates might not want to do. And irrespective, I guess, of the method, but let's focus on, on partners being the sales force 
principally because I think, as you said, John, that's the most numerous, certainly. If a firm wants to increase its sales effectiveness, where should it start, John? I'm a bit quirky on this, James. My my, uh, tendency is always to focus on meaningful conversations. And what that means is that the partner is in front of a client, a referrer, an internal colleague, talking about how they can help that particular individual or that particular team. So that's the concept of the meaningful conversation. And if you think about high-value work, there's always a conversation involved. Usually, an email exchange doesn't seal the deal for anything substantive. It might do for something small, but not for something substantive. There's a brief involved or a chat about how we're going to do it. So my sense of that is if you can get partners comfortable with that concept of you've got to go out and have some meaningful conversations with people, I think you're in a much better place to be at the sharp end of sales, as you mentioned in your introduction. And I think too many partners see sales as attending a networking event. Yep, you're having a conversation, but is it meaningful? Uh, Or marketing comms, which... Whilst that's great, that's the means to the end of ultimately having the conversation to say, I'm an expert. I think I might be able to help you with this thing that you know you've got and you've brought me in. Lee, your thoughts? Look, I couldn't agree more with John, to be perfectly honest. I would I would categorise it twofold. Where should a firm start? The first is is training. So, you know, as John points out, the ability to ask the right sorts of questions, open-ended, participate in active listening. Also building a level of resilience as well, because again, in my experience, not all of those conversations will result in another conversation. And that's fine because that's just life. And so training people and coaching people to have those conversations is incredibly important. I think the second point for me though is, In order to measure any sort of effectiveness, you've got to have a baseline. You've got to know where you are at the moment and then, in essence, where you would like to be and then measure the increase or the improvement in relation to that. But that could open an entire another can of worms about what we'd measure. So I'll leave it there for the moment. But measurement's definitely one. Is uh, the reporting of a sales pipeline important? Perhaps one of those methods for measurement you were talking about, Lee. And from your experience, if a firm wants to do that, where should it start? I think it absolutely is important because how do you know whether you've been successful if you haven't got a baseline to measure against? And so that measurement is incredibly important. There's a couple of ways a firm can start. It really depends on on the firm and the appetite of both the senior management of the organisation, but also the culture of the organisation as well. There's different approaches. You could either start small with a a particular team or group of partners or practice group, or if we're talking about some of the smaller firms, the culture of the firm and the number of people involved means you can actually enable cultural change a bit quicker. But what I would do and what I would say is err on the side of caution initially, get some ambassadors for what you're trying to do and potentially start small and then show improvement and then push it out a bit wider. And thinking about the sales skills, that training that you've both highlighted as being really important Which of the sales skills that you both recognise and consider important do you think that 
partners and other other fee owners, other professionals are most comfortable with and are least comfortable with? I think it's a spectrum list, James, you know, because if you look at some partners, you would say the networking piece, the social, so not the sharp end of sales, they're very comfortable with and happy with it. It's when they get to the sharp end that there's a challenge. However, there's many partners that I've come across over the years who hate the social networking and are most, most uncomfortable in those big, large group working the room type scenarios where they feel a little bit disingenuous. So I don't think there's one size fits all by any means, but I think when people are in front of people, I think the skill that is required, which sometimes can be very comfortable, but is required, is what Lee mentioned earlier, the questioning and listening skill. And that in itself requires some real practice to be really good. We we all think we're great questioners and listeners, in particular professionals who build the practice on understanding a, a contact's circumstances before they give advice. A lot of that is just translating it into the sales environment and you achieve a result. However, the gap is evident as as we see almost on a weekly basis when we do training and, and people need to realize that's a skill. But when they learn it, they get much, much, much more comfortable quickly. And I guess one of the challenges might be that uh, they have been successful in their career. Clients come to them, expect them to have the answer, whereas classic sales methodology, isn't it, is to ask questions and listen rather than explaining. I think there's another dynamic to this as well, though. You know, the whole point of I think that partners and professionals generally in a firm feel that selling is to sell the whole wares of the firm, their particular discipline but to sell, cross-sell the firm. When in fact, I think it's looking through the other end of the telescope, understanding what the client's got as their priorities and being able to play the right service, the right product in. So we find a lot of uh, angst about, I don't know the range of the services and I'm very uncomfortable selling colleagues that I don't know about. When in actual fact, You don't really need to do that. What you need is an overview, but to understand the client and then introduce the contact as appropriate. So firms have tried to productize their services, as we talked a little bit about earlier on. And what they'd like to do, of course, is sell them as solutions. From your perspective, how effective have they been and and how can firms adopt this method, Lee? So I'll, I'll go back to something John said earlier. I think if you take the the big four, the accountants versus the law firms, the accountants have probably stolen a bit of a march on this from an industry perspective. And I think they've been reasonably successful in doing so. And and what do we mean about kind of productization and, and selling solutions? Well, usually it's best when you've got something that is frequently changing like a regulation and people need regulatory updates or things like that toolkits the like etc how can firms be more adept at it i think it is a methodology it's again a learned skill to look at the book of work that you've got at the moment and be very realistic about well out of my book of work let's break it down into what is repeatable 
and what isn't and what am I doing for a lot of clients but I could if the market was bigger and you know I engaged with my BD and marketing teams and I found more of the same type of person could I sell it over and over and over again but that takes a different mindset it's more a segue into fast moving consumer goods as to the way in which you go to market with those kind of solutions and or products. And from your experience as well, Lee, of doing that, what has been the biggest challenge of identifying what could be a product and then turning that into a proposition? That's a really good question. uh, Let me give you two. The first is the openness of the, let's call them the product owner to let you come in and, and, and suggest a different way of, of doing things. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that we won't go into cannibalization. No, that's beneath me, etc. So it does take quite an open mind for someone to let you into their service in a way in which we commoditize or productize part of that. That's, that's the first one. And the second one really goes back very much to my, the more marketing side of what I used to do, which is the go-to-market approach is fundamentally different. You're talking in a way about volume sales rather than individual point sales. And most firms in the the B2B market aren't necessarily, from a professional services perspective, set up for that. So how good are firms at measuring and incentivizing sales success within partnerships, John? It sounds like I'm going to be a parrot here, James, but that whole thing of it's a spectrum and it's a, a mixed bag is actually the truth. How how do they do it at the the sophisticated end? Well, if you take some an interaction or sales forces used effectively as a, a database measure, then some firms are good. I wouldn't say very good. I wouldn't say excellent because for most professionals listening to the podcast – Perhaps it's the case that interaction, if they have it in their firm, the usual critique is we've got interaction, but it's not up to date and it's not a physical, accurate measure of what's actually going on. So there's that aspect to it. But I think the other side of it is it depends on the nature of the firm and how the partnership's structured. So that whole thing of incentivization for certain senior partners in a lockstep, there's not that much incentive. However, some other firms, more progressive firms, are definitely incentivizing people for, for example, origination. But the challenge with just incentivizing originating new work is those very same firms don't always incentivize cross-selling to existing clients. So there's a real mixed bag, as I say from the start point, around how one measures. And a lot depends on the culture of the firm. Ultimately, it might come down to partner appraisal, where the partner sits with their line partner and says, this is what I've done. And in fact, certain partners in certain firms have to have a full detailed appraisal of what they've done. But of course, that's open to interpretation as to who was actually responsible for that piece of work. And there have been stories of 10 partners all claiming the same origination for that same piece of work. So The answer to your question is, yeah, a bit tricky to measure on occasions. But I suppose at least if it is on the partner appraisal form and is being looked at, then there is a, you know, mindset of, you know, what what gets done gets measured, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think, you know, being, being honest and being real, 
And most partner appraisals can be fudged in that area as well. Uh, so ultimately what really talks is have you generated revenues for your team and the wider firm? And can you point to those revenues? Because hard numbers are hard numbers. Everything else is just action and behavior. And that's harder to measure. So what should be the role of the BD team in relation to sales in the future? I haven't seen many BD teams have the capacity or, and or the capability and or the budget previously to look outside their own database, right? So to go and, you know, have the authority to either go and buy data or use sales navigator to go and look at the rest of the world. But actually some really efficient market segmentation are bringing new opportunities into the business that you wouldn't have otherwise had. The other point is, is kind of a reinforcement of the previous one, which is actually if you have your BD teams front and centre and client facing and bringing the leads further down the sales funnel, it actually becomes very efficient very quickly because they are simply much cheaper. Mm. I, I think that's right. It takes me back to a story going back to my uh, PwC days. I was stopped by a partner in a corridor and he basically said, John, what do all of your people do? Now, that's an indictment of a BD team that were absolutely at the top of the game at the time. Excellent people doing an excellent job. But I think this is exactly the challenge of partner attitudes, not just towards BD team members, but you know the general sales process, you know, the whole thing of, these people are supporting me, but I'm not quite sure how they're supporting me and, and what they're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think the whole point about that is maybe there is time for a new breed of person in professional services that is really sales-focused, that commands the attention and respect of the partners. Those people will be quite rare, but if you get those people and they demonstrate that they're successful in the areas that Lee's talked about, I think there could be a sea change because firms follow other firms that are successful. So what is the future of sales within professional services? Lee, have you got your crystal ball out? I have. I mean, for me, it's bright. Um, and why do I say that? Um, interestingly, I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about, uh, and I'm, I'm amazed we're getting towards the end of a podcast without having talked about generative AI, but I do think it will have a transformational effect on the legal industry. Um, and specifically in relation to this question, I think it becomes over time quite a big leveller. So in the BD community, we've talked for years about the level of legal advice when you get to a certain level is not a differentiator it's a given. And so going forward, what will be the differentiators as far as which firm do I choose? And I truly believe that it will be those behavioural capabilities. So your active listening, your open questioning, your personality, if you will, to interact with another human being. This is literally going to be the difference between winning and losing large mandates. John, how about you? I think Lee's hit the nail on the head, James, here. This whole thing about generative AI being a leveller, if you think about it, a small firm, a tiny firm with the right marketer 
can produce thought leadership in the same way that one of the major multinational firms can do because they're assisted by the world's best uh, thought leaders in that process. So that thing of being a leveller is absolutely right. So it does come down to the individuals on the face-to-face conversations being more credible than others. And it goes back to the same thing about human behaviour, doesn't it? People by people and that whole thing about being curious about your client, caring about your client, being close to your client is probably the thing that's going to make the difference in the future. Maybe it's always been like that, but I think the gap's closed now, certainly on the marketing comms side of life. The last thing I want to do on this episode is to thank my guests, John Timpley and Lee Curtis. Thank you, John. Thank you, James. Very interested indeed. Appreciate it. And thank you, Lee. Thanks a lot, James. Really enjoyed it. We have exciting plans for future episodes, so please look out for updates from me on LinkedIn. You can find other episodes of The Glue on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And please follow me or subscribe so you don't miss any. Goodbye. (laughs) 